From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode is my longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Jim Baird. I've known Jim over 25 years as an academic and then a USGA regional agronomist, and now as professor and turfgrass extension specialist at the University of California at Riverside in Southern California. Jim's been the lone academic in California for many years now and has built a team of scientists that have served the region and now the world for the last 15 years of his tenure. As you will see, Jim is committed to saving turf grass in the desert southwest. Before we get to my conversation with Jim, it's probably time to either winterize your spray rig or make sure it's ready to execute your spray program this winter. In either case, Frost Spray Technology have the type of products that are what you need today to make your spray day a great day. A lifelong interest in spray technology led Ken Ross to starting Frost, and the innovation keeps coming. Visit them at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. I don't know what took so long to have my friend Jim Baird here, but Jim, uh, all good things come to those who wait. And I've known you a bit of time now over a number of different stops in your career, much like my career uh, had some stops. Now you are a tenured professor at uh, UC Riverside and filling some big old shoes there from some of the giants in this business. Thanks for taking the time to join me. How are you like in Southern California over the last 12 years of being there? Actually, you've been 15 now, Frank. It's oh, amazing. Yeah, oh. <laughs> Time flies. Never thought I'd stay in a, one position for this long. Well, but, uh, let's just yeah, say, we you, you know, like me, you jumped around a little bit at first. Yes, early on in my career, I was wondering if I could make it past three or four years. But looking back, though, it was all my doing. So it wasn't like somebody forced me out. So right. uh, I'm fortunate to be here for 15 years uh, Living the dream here in California, yeah, yeah. as they say. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. But you're not from out there. Where are you from? Originally from Colorado, born and raised in Pueblo, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Started my career in turf, you know, as many, I think, uh, stem from golf. I started playing golf when I was about 13 years old and started working on a golf course and the maintenance crew of around 16. Yeah. And that's when I caught the bug and yeah. never looked back since. CSU or don't I remember an Oklahoma State stop? Well, originally, when I realized that this is what I wanted to pursue with my career, I kind of asked around and, you know, heard about the big programs at Penn State, Michigan State, Ohio State, and so applied to those schools, but ended up going to Penn State for two years. It's a great program, obviously, but uh, I'm the youngest of six kids and uh, (laughs) the only one to go to school out of state. I realized that was kind of a a hardship on my parents, even though they were happy to do that and would have continued to do that. But after two years, I decided to transfer back home to Colorado State. And I'm, I'm certainly grateful I did that. That's where I met my wife of uh, more than 35 years yeah, now. Wow. So that, that was fortunate. And uh, I had a chance to work under uh, someone who I was very grateful to uh, and thought very much of was Dr. Jackie Butler. Yeah. That was at the end of his career at, at CSU, but uh, someone who probably not a lot of people you know know about or remember, but uh, he was certainly uh, a great individual. I do. A whole bunch of Coloradans have come out from there. And Jackie, really, I think one of the early sports turf guys, I think that's where Minner got some of his early motivation. And Jack, unfortunately, you know, died not long after 
he yeah, retired that was very from fortunate. there. Yes. And Tony took over uh, out there. So, you know, one of the things that I've always admired, Jim, was since we're chatting about you, I'll, I'll join the chorus here. You know, when I saw you operate as an agronomist with the USGA, particularly in the market you were working in, that is a demanding job. Back the way it was pre under Matt Pringle. So it would have been under Kimberly or Jim uh, at the time. The, the green sections changed so dramatically and in many great ways, almost all great ways. You know, they got rid of, of course, all the old knuckleheads like my pal Vavrik <laughs> and Skorolski and Larry Gilhuli, who was posing as an agronomist, being a golfer most of the time. And I love all those guys. But you were in a tough spot. What did you take from sort of being on the front lines? I know Jackie would have been proud. He was a good, strong extension guy. What did you take from working in that market that's maybe served you well still now? Well, first of all, Frank, as I mentioned earlier, I do what I do because of golf. And one of my early internship experiences was at the Denver Country Club. And during that summer, they were hosting the Curtis Cup matches. So I was very fortunate then to meet several of the USGA officials, and especially at that time, President uh, Bill Campbell, who just couldn't have been nicer to me, uh, took me under his wing, spent a number of hours just talking with me. And and that was something that I, I've never forgotten. And that was back in the days, Frank, when those guys wore the blue blazers. Yeah, uh, yeah. and the badges. Uh, frequently, yeah. and the badges, exactly. And so I, I always kept that in the back of my mind that yeah. that was something I wanted to do because of my love for golf, mm-hmm. love for turf. It was a little bit later, obviously, to realize that dream, so to speak, mm-hmm. but I'm fortunate to have done that. And actually, it's kind of worked out because I did have an opportunity to re- return to academia. But at the time, I remember you know, working for the USGA, just being on the front lines with the superintendents and you know, realizing much more their challenges and how research can help those challenges. I kind of wished at the time, it's like, well, I wish I had this experience before I went into academia because I think it would have made me a much better scientist. <laughs> well, fast forward, I mean, we I've had 15, 15 years now to use that knowledge that I gained, you know, during those seven or eight years yeah. with USGA and apply that towards the research I do. And quite honestly, as with most of us in this industry, I mean, golf drives our industry. 100%. And so the superintendents are the most supportive of my program here at, mm-hmm. at UCR. So it's nice to be able to give back yeah. and just have a better understanding from my time with the USGA in terms of the kind of research that I do for them. Mm-hmm. Brilliant answer. And I'd say the same from the years that I worked on the golf course uh, in the maintenance business. I, I wasn't a golfer, uh, still a hack it around. I, I enjoy to play and can play well when I play a lot and my back holds up. But in general, mm-hmm. I came the other way and was also motivated by a USGA agronomist named Jim Snow. Uh, Jim showed up with the blue blazer and the badge and immediately I was like, well, I want to be that guy. He knows everything about this thing. So now, speaking of history, let's talk about the history of where you are. I think you were there. If you're there 15 years, Vic's still alive. Steve was alive. Youngner was probably long past, but there's really rich history down there. Never mind, you know, Frank was there for, you know, a brief minute. Bob Green, maybe still there. I'm not sure. Other good scientists have worked there. But did you get to spend any time with Steve and Vic? And I'm wondering, as an old guy, you and I are old guys now, um, how that might have influenced sort of the th- ways you think about things there and down there in California. Those guys, they're like father figures to me and to this industry. They sort of uh, did progressive work back in the day. 
how was it like uh, when you got there and meeting them and getting to know them a little bit? Oh, certainly. Yeah, they, I think highly of all those guys. And, and I was fortunate to interact with Steve. He left us much too soon, uh, Steve Cockerham. Mm-hmm. But Vic's still around, still lives in Riverside. We don't get together anywhere near as much as we should. And certainly the recent events with COVID have kind of kept us apart. Yeah. But I, I really think very highly of those individuals, and I really value what they've done. I mean, they basically started the program, you know, in addition to Vic Youngner, as you mentioned. So I, I think back, what, what I do today is certainly trying to carry the torch forward in terms of the program and not screw it up, <laughs> so to speak, in terms of, uh, you know, what they, the foundation that they built. And, you know, interestingly, in terms of our breeding program that we've kind of been able to resurrect over the last 10 years. It's very interesting that although I never had the opportunity to meet Dr. Youngner, I mean, he was thinking about the same things that we're doing today, you know, back then. And uh, you look at a a release of his uh, Santa Ana, which is an oldie but a goodie, Frank. Sure. That has the traits that, you know, we desire. And Mm -hmm. up until now, it's still... Uh, a choice among uh, golf courses, uh, not only in California, but worldwide, I think, just in terms of traits. I, I would, I agree 100%. It's so interesting. Vic did some of the early work looking at irrigation patterns and where annual bluegrass expressed more annual-like characteristics. And of course, you know, you know, like I know, since Devin and Jim have been doing the work at Tennessee, are thinking about annual bluegrass is evolving dramatically really quickly. But Vic was on the early end of that. And one of the things that Vic and Steve and Vic Younger and Vic Jabot had were good people around them. And I got to know Vic enough on the USGA Research Committee. It was always a good team. Him and Steve were a spectacular team. And you've done pretty well, pal, uh, in having good teams uh, over the years. And, you know, honestly, we know a lot about each other because these these things on social media where, you know, I, I know the people that worked with you early on and how they've moved through and your work continues and then the next batch of people come. And I think now you're on your third or fourth collection of scientists and, you know, your, your influence is populating other faculties, right? These guys working with you are, are now running their own programs. How do you find really good people like this? And I'm assuming you create an environment where they all, you know, have their own autonomy to do their thing. Yeah, Frank, I've been very fortunate. I mean, I think you're only as good as the people that you surround yourself with. And I've been fortunate in that regard. And I think for us, it's a challenge in many ways. I think you know about our situation here in California. We'll get to that. (laughs) Well, the good news about that is we got great consultants like Mahati and Stoll. And there's a reason that they're here is it goes back to, you know, they're trying to fill voids that really our university system is not addressing, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and so, Ali, Ali was there and that position's gone. You know, right. Maggie was out in Fresno or Sacramento for a while and she's gone. Right. So yeah, you, you've got a tough battle there and having that team has really helped. It's tough in terms of being the, the lone faculty member, at least in the UC system, is a challenge. And so, you know, I've kind of taken the attitude, I'm I'm not giving up certainly in trying to increase that number, but I've sort of had to take the approach that, you know, try to bring in the best people, try to elevate them as high as they could possibly be in, in our system. And one of the challenges, Frank, is obviously 
where we live. Mm -hmm. It's very expensive to live in California. And the other thing is that the University of California values the PhD. Mm -hmm. And so in order to pay someone really what they're worth, I've had people who didn't have a PhD, maybe had a master's, you know, it's not like I can pay them what I think they're worth. It's based on your degree here Mm -hmm. in the system. So that's been a challenge in terms of maybe attracting more domestic people because just the cost of living here. Fortunately, in terms of our breeding program, the person I call our head coach is Adam Lukaszewski from Poland. Early on, he was able to develop a pipeline for us in terms of uh, attracting scientists from Poland who maybe didn't certainly didn't have turf grass experience, but had strong plant science foundation. Mm. And so we've been fortunate to attract, you know, many good people from Poland. Mm. And then through my good friend in New Mexico State, Barrett Leinauer, mm-hmm. Barrett established sort of the Italian connection. Right. And so we were able to bring in Marco Schiavone and, you know, later Matteo Serena, but also I think certainly over 10 people that we've had in our program that maybe just have have been here for six month periods. And so, like you said earlier, these guys have gone on and are, are in faculty positions now. And yeah. I wish I could have kept them. That's right. <laughs> I, I wish the university would kind of see that and value that. But unfortunately, uh, we, we just haven't, you know, we're not at that point yet, but I'm, I think we're getting closer. I'm really pleased to hear that you feel like you're getting closer, but part of getting closer is refilling positions And I'm also interested in maybe we're going to have a new generation of consultants with Micah taking over uh, for Pace. Uh, Mark Mahaddy still going at it. There could be a lot of opportunities for consultants. Do you see us maybe refilling the Ali position? And, you know, what do you think's going on with the consultants moving forward? Well, I've got a couple of answers to that, Frank. First is that I think that the need for consultants is going to continue. And it's good to see that the baton is being passed with Larry and Wendy. Mm -hmm. I know Mark's still going strong, but he's around my age. So uh, we don't have that much more time left. So uh, the thing that I'm focused on now is ensuring that our breeding program will continue for a long time. And so the next faculty position should be the turf grass breeding position. Mm-hmm. So excellent. We're working on that. Excellent. It's going to take input from industry, certainly. Excellent. From there, we'll move on. And I think one of the challenges is that I've always thought about is that, you know, I've come from programs like you, Michigan State, you know, Oklahoma State, Auburn, where these programs are very strongly tied with the undergraduate mm-hmm. turf program. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the alumni, you know, went to that particular university. And so the support of the institution is strong from the turfgrass industry. Mm -hmm. Well, in California, there's no undergraduate turf program in the UC system. So with the exception of a few people that might have attended UCR, maybe in business or or Mm -hmm. another area and then found their way into turf, you know, we just don't have that allegiance. And so that's been one of the challenges in terms of having that very strong support. Yeah. Uh, The other thing is we're such a huge state, so diverse in terms of our climate that it's really hard to get everyone on the same page. It's a lot different than I remember Michigan. Everybody didn't matter what part of the industry you were in, whether it's athletic fields or golf courses or home lawn care I mean, everybody was on the same page there and and supporting the university as a whole. 
Yeah, and you've gotten some good press lately, Jim, on the breeding program that gave you the 15 minutes of fame we started out talking about <laughs> before we went on the air. Let me introduce you again. This is Professor Jim Baird, University of California, Riverside. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Water management remains a major concern for many golf course superintendents in the Southwest. Products with proven performance from university research like Jim Baird's are worth a look. When you do so, you'll see plant food company products performing well in tough conditions. Learn more about improving stress tolerance from your local plant food rep or at plantfoodco.com. All right, Jim, welcome back. And now I want to turn to that wonderful research. You you know, you highlighted the breeding program. I want to save that a little bit for the end. But I want to get into the variety of product evaluation trials that you do. You've got fungicide trials, it looks like. You've got anguina trials. Uh, and I know you've been hot on the annual bluegrass control, both with Poacure and now with Chameleon. And it looks like, talk about living the dream. I know you're riding bikes up sides of mountains, but California is a big old state. You must spend a fair amount of time in the air. And I'm wondering about, is some of this work and the toils you go through, which you document well on Twitter, I'm assuming you're doing it because you know this is what the superintendents want to hear from you. Yes. I mean, we we certainly try to answer as many of their questions as, as possible and and so, yeah, product testing has kind of become <laughs> one of our areas of of interest. It's not been a particularly fun area at times for me. Uh, <laughs> I've certainly uh, alienated parts of our industry from this, but uh, I think most people realize that we pretty much call it like it is. Everyone, even though they may not always appreciate that, I think ultimately they value that, you know, we're trying to provide our industry with the best possible information and I don't know how this started for me, Frank, but maybe it was dating back to my USGA days and kind of visiting superintendents on a daily basis and hearing about what they're using or not using and those snake oils that are out there that we you know, they've always been there and always will be, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess that kind of translated into my time here at UCR when we developed that program. Uh, and it's not something I, I want to do solely in terms of our research, but I, I think it's very important because... Whenever we have a crisis, and, and certainly we are in a, a major water crisis right now, there's always those products that come out that are touted as you know saving the day, and <laughs> and oftentimes, unfortunately, they don't do anything <laughs> to save the that's day. That's right. Right. So that's all true, and at the same time, anybody like myself who's done consulting in California, pay attention, you know, work with superintendents in California, visit golf courses in California. California chemical use is always quite a bit more scrutinized, altered, delayed, much like New York, than other states in the country. So you could argue that there's some value to you keeping a knowledge base of the fungicides, the herbicides, uh, nematicides. But I want to particularly talk a little bit about the POA stuff, if you'll indulge me for a minute. Okay. You know, I've seen with my own eyes how POA cures worked when I've seen it used, you know, in a scientific study. And I've seen it in Asia, Australia, Europe, and America. <laughs> I've seen it <laughs> in different environments on different grasses. And to me, it, it consistently looks like, you know, the real deal. Chameleon is one that you and I know Ron Calhoun 
you know, from the Michigan State days, Ron's had that product 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, might have even been when you were at Michigan State. Ron might have been doing some of that work. Are we getting close to having a reliable herbicide that, if we use properly, we'll be able to get a number of years out of it? You've been playing around with this. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think these are certainly two herbicides that are step in the right direction towards battling POA. I think we all know that <laughs> POA is a formidable foe and certainly has the ability to adapt to situations. But I, I think having these two herbicides and hopefully Camilleron will come sooner than it took for POA cure. And I think that will be the case since the EPA has some familiarity with that chemistry, mm-hmm. if you will. Uh, I think it's going to come a little bit quicker. So you know, this is always a, a challenge. And I just to give you an example, we we had a pretty hard summer this year in mm-hmm. California. I mean, mm-hmm. just a lot hotter, less precipitation going back for several months. And then later in this season, we had some not only the hot weather, but combined with some humidity, which we don't normally have, and a little bit of monsoonal rainfall, which is very rare. And once again, courses that were fairly comfortable in maintaining Poa annua on their greens ran into some issues. And so it always brings up the question about, well, should they be Poa or should they switch to bankgrass, something that's obviously more stress tolerant? And the next thing that comes up when that question's asked is like, well, if we go to bent grass, how are we going to keep the POA out? Because POA and California go well together. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's right. just an ideal climate for that yeah. species. And so I think having these two herbicides are, are really a step in the right direction in terms of switching to a species that's going to be much more stress tolerant. I know we're just talking about three acres of a hundred plus acre golf course, but the number of pesticides, you know, and the number of inputs required to keep POA going strong versus bent grass. I mean, that's, it's kind of night and day. And yeah. so don't get me wrong. I've you know, we, you and I have seen many great golf courses with Poa annua greens, 100%. but it's kind of like, you know, when you need it most, uh, it's not there for you. <laughs> and I witnessed many, many situations like that when I was with the USGA back in the Northeast. And, and maybe we don't have as many of those circumstances here in California, but there's a number of examples. I mean, the anguina nematode in coastal Northern California, I mean, it's pretty much a pest of, of annual bluegrass mm-hmm. and it could cause a great deal of damage. Look at just the fungal pathogens that pretty much just attack annual bluegrass more so than bentgrass. The amount of fungicides that need to be applied just to keep that alive. And then, you know, the salinity stress, uh, rapid blight disease, which is a pathogen associated with salinity, is yeah. pretty much a phenomenon that's mostly associated for us with annual bluegrass. So yeah, right. there's a lot of good reasons to think about switching, especially in light of our weather patterns today. Mm-hmm. And I think they're just going to get worse and it's going to be more challenging to keep a species like Poa annua uh, alive. And if you look at it like, well, if we switch, you know, how are we going to keep the Poa out? Well, there's only a limited number of golf courses that can ultimately resort to handpicking. I've seen some of the best ones keep it out more than 20 years, but those are rare circumstances. Most of the time, you know, you're talking about within five years that Poa invading to a point where if you don't have let's say a selective herbicide to remove it, it's just going to continue to escalate and then you're back to POA. Yeah. Then you're reliant on trim it or the two-way or the three-way in some ways. 
to adjust and use growth regulators as herbicides. And that, of course, you know, doesn't get them to zero. And if you're not really close to zero, you're at 10% before you know it if you've got bad growing conditions. Now, I will say, Jim, one of the great challenges I find when I go to California is it's a shorter list of grasses to simply ask what they don't grow on their golf course, right? Especially when you get into Kikuya range, right? Mm -hmm. You've always Mm -hmm. generally got Bermuda. I don't think I go to too many places where Bermuda won't grow. It might not grow well, but it'll grow. You see fine fescue right next to zoysia grass sometimes. And of course you have the palette of cool season grasses, but in one part of your state down in the desert, They strive for uniformity that's really unprecedented, except for maybe there, Vegas, and outside of Phoenix and Scottsdale, you know, in Arizona. And that's a totally different environment. I want to make the transition here to some discussion about water, but also about this particular part of our industry. You and I know from visiting there, it's primarily an amenity that has supported the real estate business. Now, certainly tennis and music are big business in the desert as well. But I promise you those things don't cost as much to manage as the golf courses do down there, (laughs) nor do they use as much water. I know you work down there. I love all those guys. I get to visit those deserts. In fact, I'm, I'm in fact, partially obsessed with it, my wife will tell you. Uh, I've really (laughs) fallen in love with the desert. How are you working with those guys, uh, you know, to address the variety of issues that they have? Now, they don't have as many maybe fungicide, insecticide issues, but they got plenty of weed issues and plenty of overseeding and watering issues. How are you working with those guys down there? Yeah, it's interesting, Frank. As I said, we have six superintendents chapters in in our state, and uh, I try to work with them individually and as a whole as well, but individually in terms of kind of their regional challenges. And, you know, we spoke before about anguina nematodes, which is largely like the Northern California superintendents and maybe a little bit of central. But when it comes to the desert, the high-low golf course superintendents association, when I meet with them and speak with them about their research needs, it's pretty much in my 15 years, it's all revolved around overseeding. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a desert and we're talking about all of our water issues. But, you know, one of the things about water in, in our state and I guess in the Southwest, it's like a matter of the haves and the have-nots. Exactly right. And for the large part, the golf courses down the Coachella Valley are, are sitting on top of some pretty good water reserves. Doesn't mean that that's not going to change real soon, but, you know, I've never been asked Mm-hmm. about any type of research revolving around water, <laughs> water conservation, <laughs> uh, et cetera. It's the water funny. quality is good as well, Frank. Yeah, it's uh, not yeah, yeah, so yeah. like, yeah. you know, you go to the other deserts, you know, in Arizona or Nevada, mm-hmm. then oftentimes water quality is an issue. And, and so, but for the most part, their water is somewhat plentiful and good quality. Yeah. So it's been mostly revolving around overseeding. Yeah. And so this is certainly something that, you know, we're trying to change collectively. And I realize that ultimately it's driven by the consumer and, you know, golfers still travel to the Coachella Valley largely in the wintertime and they expect the oasis that they're accustomed to. And so times, you know, as we, as we move forward and we, you know, look at changing perspectives, uh, it's got to come from the golfer as well in terms of what they can put up with. And we're ultimately, I know we're I'm getting ahead of myself yeah. with Maybe you're questioning about our, our breeding program, but, you know, we're largely striving to produce, you know, a grass that doesn't require overseeding in the future. And I'm confident we'll get there. We're not there yet, but we're, we're, we're making it. 
Getting the most out of your playing surfaces, especially when you need it most, requires a high-functioning sand-based system. Managing these modern sand-based systems requires sand amendments, aeration, and top dressing. Dryject does all three at once. And the sand you can use can even be wet. Contact your local Dryject representative or for more information, visit dryject.com. Get there. We're not there yet, but we're 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 making good progress. I will say, Jim, and yeah, I want to get to the breeding program for sure, because that's where you've, of course, had the 15 minutes of fame that I'm trying to <laughs> add to with this podcast. But it's the funniest thing traveling from the east. I think it's the power of, you know, I, I follow Mike Huck and I travel to that area. But even if you paid attention to watching CNN or Fox or any of the places you get your your information. Every news outlet is talking about the drought in California. Everybody except the people in California. <laughs> when I go out there, I'm like, well, what about the water? Like, what about it? Like, well, are you getting any pressure? Well, I don't know. It sort of costs a little bit more, but I don't really pay that much for it. It's eye-opening to realize that in those areas, there isn't the same conversation about water for the reasons you gave, right? And they're perfectly valid reasons, right? But if you look at it as an industry, it's what the consumer is demanding and willing to pay, as you know, Jim, top dollar, a big portion of their discretionary income, right? It's not like people who have houses down there in the winter, you know, are worrying about where their next meal is coming from necessarily. So the demand is really high. And I know you're you're working on those grasses. I personally am wondering if they had to make adaptations before you have this grass ready. You know, the other pressures they're having is not just water. Fertilizer costs up until recently were pretty nasty. Uh, Seed costs aren't going down anytime soon. So those have been up dramatically. And then there's the water question. So, So in my mind, I'm with you. It's those three things maybe before it's even water. But when the water hits... What do you think, what kind of adaptations you think they're going to do? They'll probably maybe still keep the greens uh, overseeded and cut back the roughs? Or what do you think the adaptation is working with those guys over the last bunch of years? Well, I think, quite honestly, I, I would say that uh, if we're talking about the Coachella Valley, I think it's we're still ways away from <laughs> any major changes for what I'm seeing because okay. uh, I don't see a lot of changes in habits. I mean, again, everyone's still overseeding. Maybe it's not wall-to-wall as it once was, and that was something I think that the golf courses prided themselves in. And I'm not talking about superintendents, but I'm talking about the golfers, the members, mm-hmm. that they were going to a an oasis uh, on their golf course as opposed to, let's say, that more target golf, mm-hmm. which I think you know kind of was adopted earlier in, let's say, Arizona or you know other parts of the country. But they've always prided themselves in the entire golf course in the wintertime is green. Mm-hmm you know, with ryegrass or, mm-hmm. or poa trivialis. You know, I haven't seen a lot of changes. Again, it goes back to, you know, who has the water and who doesn't. And so I just look at my own situation here in Riverside, the water district where we get our water. This past summer had enough of its reserves because there were no restrictions on our water use. <laughs> now, granted, the cost of water has risen. That is something that's taken place everywhere, I think, in our state. Mm-hmm. But if you compare that to the Los Angeles area, I mean, there were restrictions for much of the summer where folks could only water their lawn once a week. And most of those lawns did not do well. And, and it kind of gets back to a major issue in our state. And this is something that just 
really shocked me moving mm-hmm. to California 15 yeah. years ago mm-hmm. is how much cool season grass yeah. we still grow in the state. <laughs> and if we, if we kind of just separate the golf courses for, I mean, if you look at the golf courses in Southern California are largely growing the right, the right grasses, uh, they're mostly Bermuda grass, which are go-to grass. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the home lawn front, I mean, uh, tall fescue is still king of lawn grasses and it, it shouldn't be Frank. Yeah. It, uh, it quite honestly shouldn't be, yeah, yeah. especially in Southern California. That's right. You know, we're trying now to change the mindset because unfortunately the homeowner, the typical layperson, they don't really know what species it is that they just know it as a lawn, yeah. which has been tall fescue. And they just see that as a water pig, which it is quite honestly in the summertime, it takes a lot of water to keep tall fescue looking good yeah. in our summers. I mean, but you look right now, we've, we haven't really had that much rain, but it's cooling off. The days are getting shorter and the tall fescue is just perked up and loving life. Yeah. yeah. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, you know, this is obviously why people want it, you know, because they have green grass in the wintertime. But really, quite honestly, we should be using warm season grasses, which on paper is going to save 20% in terms of water use. Yeah. And then it's just amazing how much variation there is within the Bermuda grass species mm-hmm. in terms of water use efficiency. Mm-hmm. You know, we can add on easily another 20% beyond that. So we're talking about 40% or more water savings by selecting the proper species. But it's just a, really a challenge in our state because there's just this mindset that the lawn is just the culprit. It's mm-hmm. the bad, you know, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what it is, it's, you know, it's a lawn, therefore it uses a lot of water. And that's a challenge in terms of trying to change that uh, thinking. Well, your recent press on the local news and, you know, recently in the family handyman with, you know, dogs peeing on things. I, you know, I can't <laughs> tell you how many times I've answered that question. So I, I had a big chuckle out of that. So you got a lot of press recently for this. That has to be a strategy because, you know, obviously I'm with you a hundred percent. It was shocking to me to realize that they're not using warm season grasses down there on lawns. Sometimes I've heard people say, well, you know, the Bermuda is dormant and then I got winter annual weeds problems. So now I'm going to have weeds in the wintertime or my lawn's going to be brown, straw brown. I don't want it straw brown in the wintertime. So obviously your tact and the Oklahoma state tact where Tahoma has come from and I don't know where lat 36 has come from. I think iron cutter is another one that I hear Holds its all green Oklahoma color. Ones, yeah, all sure. Oklahoma ones, right? So so they're holding their color through the winter. And so the grass that you're getting the press for, I've seen the pictures. Talk a little bit about it. And we'll wrap up on this. I've had the pleasure of chatting with Brian Swartz at uh, University of Georgia a few times. And he said Tiff Tuff was sort of discovered when they turned the water off on the NTEP trials. And it's the one that came right to the top, even though it's been in the trials for a really long time. Where is this material that you've got recently coming from? And what do you see it as? First, it's got to go, you know, you got to test it out a little bit more. Then you got to do the genetics and then you got to get it to sod growers. So we know this is ways off. But number one, winter color has got to be the target and also being able to use less water. And what about the weed question? And we'll get out of here. Okay. So let me start, Frank. And and I know you know this, but for the audience uh, who may not know me, I'm the farthest thing from a, a geneticist. So I, I consider myself more the cheerleader of our program. So yes, I'm experiencing my uh, fair share of fame recently, but 
I have to acknowledge those who really created these grasses, and that goes back to Adam Lukaszewski and then more recently Marta Pujanowska, who also came through the pipeline from Poland. So we're, we're very fortunate to have them, and they're the ones who deal with the genetics in, in our program. So our program is about realizing that probably the main reason Californians in general don't use warm season grasses or just our industry hasn't used it is the winter color aspect. I mean, we're in a Mediterranean climate. We have hot, dry summers, but typically cooler, you know, used to be wet, somewhat wetter winters. From what I know about the history of our state, at least the last century, there was a time when Kentucky bluegrass was king of lawn grasses. And when there were some droughts back then in the 70s, there was a movement towards tall fescue just because of its drought avoidance mechanisms. It has a deeper root system, so it was a little bit better able to survive under those situations. But So it's largely been kind of a cool season state, especially in terms of our lawns. Dr. Youngner, I'm sure was, as I mentioned earlier, was thinking the same things in, you know, as a warm season breeder. And he developed grasses that had better winter color. And so when we re- resurrected our program about 10 years ago, we didn't have really anything, Frank, to start with in terms of germplasm. I mean, mm-hmm. there was pretty much everything that Dr. Youngner had had long been destroyed. And so we did the old-fashioned way, which was to write the germplasm repository in, in Georgia, mm-hmm. the USDA Turfgrass Germplasm Repository. And we requested samples of predominantly Bermuda grass from climates similar to ours, Mediterranean climates around the world. So the repository has been in existence for quite a while. And when you have grasses in the greenhouse, they're going to get into each other. And so we've obviously dealt with issues of probably contamination but we were able to bring in about 60-something, I believe, different genotypes of Bermuda grass, common types, and then African types, which are the two parents that, that typically produce many of the hybrid Bermudas that we all know and enjoy today. So uh, that's kind of where the program started. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once we've performed the crosses and ultimately put these plants in the field, the very first selection criterion in our program is winter color retention. And It's winter color retention in Riverside, California, which certainly not the coldest area, but not the warmest either. And so we typically do have cold enough weather to where the warm season grasses will go dormant. So we've been able to select grasses that, at least in our climate, have retained green color in the wintertime. And then you've got to have that to make it in our program. And so the two new grasses that we're about to release that are kind of represent the initial crosses made in our program, the, the start of it. These have improved winter color retention. But then the second thing that we kind of stumbled on during the process is just how much variation there is in terms of drought tolerance, you know, water use efficiency of within the Bermuda grass species. Mm-hmm. And so we've tried to capitalize that as kind of become the second criterion in our program. Part of the reason why we've selected these two new ones to release is it's kind of a combination of the best of both worlds in terms of winter color retention and improved drought tolerance above and beyond kind of what are considered the conventional hybrid Bermuda grasses in use today. It's a fascinating story, and people don't know about those repositories, Jim. I know I work with a lot of vegetable breeders up here in our plant science department, and They oftentimes will refer to the repositories we have here. We have the Apple and the Grape Repository in Geneva, New York. So 
we could talk for another hour, but we've used it up, Jim. And I don't want to <laughs> take too much of that fame. You got to dole it out to other folks. And now that you've got the new mic and headset, and you sound <laughs> like you're ready for the to be the nightfly on the jazz radio playing there at UC Riverside. I'll thank you so much, Jim, for taking the time to join me, and so much for your support and service of the industry over a number of states and a lot of years. Uh, I'm so pleased to see it all come to fruition out there for you in California and best of luck on your future plans. And you've always got somebody who's willing to support those ideas uh, here. I'm happy to do that. Take care of yourself, Jim. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Frank. All right, Jim Baird from the University of California, Riverside. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Thanks to Dr. Jim Baird at the University of California, Riverside. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. <laughs>